welcome to The Long Short. I'm Tom Kyo. And I'm Drew Nicholl. We have a jam-packed episode this week with three excellent guests here to talk about an area of the alternative space that we haven't covered in a while. That's right, Drew. Every year since 2015, AIM's private credit affiliate, the Alternative Credit Council, has produced an annual report on the health of the private credit industry, tracking its growth and increasing sophistication. This year's report has just gone live and it's full of really interesting data points on how the private credit space has fared in the very different macroeconomic landscape it finds itself in today compared to last year. The report is now live and available to download by visiting AIMA.org or checking out the show notes for this episode. But if you can't wait, then we're here to help you unpack some of the main findings of the report and we have three guests representing AIMA members that were integral to the report's production. Later in the episode, we'll be speaking with Michael Small, a partner in credit and markets at KKR, a multi-billion dollar global investment firm that offers alternative asset management as well as capital markets and insurance solutions. But before then, we're joined by Denise Gibson, co-head of Leverage Finance at the international law firm Allen & Overy, and Hannah Gates, who is a partner in the Leverage Finance team specialising in private credit. You are both very welcome to the Long Shore. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be here. So I'm, I'm not sure which one of you wants to take this first, but just at a very high level, the private credit market appears to have been doing well recently. And I think it's fair to say there's somewhat strong sentiment that it will continue to do so. So it'd be really helpful if we could just start by laying out some of the drivers behind this growth and maybe even just go back to first principles and, and talk about some of the benefits of private credit for borrowers as opposed to syndicated loans or even traditional financing sources. Sure. This, this is Hannah speaking. Why, why don't I start by taking uh, that from the investor side and then, then pass over to Denise to maybe talk a bit more about um, the borrower perspective, uh, if that sounds good. So there's a lot of factors contributing to the rapid expansion of private credit, uh, both in terms of you know where primary investors choose to put their money uh, and also from the borrower perspective. On the investor side, we know from our clients that investors are attracted to private credit as an asset class because of the returns, uh, because uh, the investments tend to be more attuned to uh, the stability of the underlying credit rather than sort of market sentiment, um, and particularly because of the ability to still achieve portfolio diversification while simultaneously having greater control over the ultimate investment, uh, particularly you know with with the right, wide range of funds that they're able to choose between in terms of, you know, setting their own agenda for size, sector, uh, jurisdiction of investment, as well as other criteria like ESG and, and, and you know, multi-strap funds, which have more or less bandwidth for, for managers to decide where to deploy their capital. So there's a huge range of, of products that investors are able to, to choose between. And, and, you know, with the increasing range of products, we've, we've seen a correlating increase in appetite. Okay, I guess... Um... You know, after everybody hasn't invested all that money, how do you go about deploying those funds? I think what has been, you know, increasingly interesting over the last few years is the expanded scope of borrowers who are really looking to private credit as an answer to their financing needs. And if I think back even sort of four years ago, speaking to one of the contacts at a, at a, at a key sponsor client, you know, they were not actually using private credit at all. They were still very much into the public markets, high yield bonds, you know, and the syndicated TLB market. And if I fast forward that same sponsor to this year, well, in fact, not even just this year, because this year has been bespoke for a number of reasons, but private credit has become at least probably 50% of, of what they do in terms of their financing needs. 
And for 2022, it's no surprise to anybody that this year um, private credit has completely exploded because actually the syndicated markets have largely been closed. Uh, and so actually, you know, again, that the growth this year has been phenomenal. But as I say, this is not a trend that's just been caused by the syndicated markets being closed. I think there's been a year on year trend to more and more borrowers uh, looking to private credit for the solutions. And look, part of that's also because of the development of private credit, which I think we'll come on to talk about later today. But the, you know, this has been about them moving up the, the sort of space from lower mid cap into sort of upper mid cap and even now being able to really sort of compete with the under, underwritten market for some of the larger cap transactions. And if we think about what's been driving that trend, I think there's a number of things, but, but one is that actually I think people really enjoy the fact this is quite relationship-based lending. So actually, once you've developed a good relationship with one of the private credit institutions, you know these people are going to turn up. And they turn up and they invest in your portfolio companies for the life of the deal. They actually, they want to act as a partner. They want to see the ongoing success because their interests are very aligned with, with the sponsors in terms of, you know, what is going to make this work in the longer term. So if we think about the COVID pandemic, for example, I think a lot of sponsors were impressed by what they actually got back from a lot of their private credit relationships in, in the sense of supporting those portfolio businesses because they could see that this was a short-term blip, ultimately going to, you know, if, this, if they worked together, that there would be a, a happy ever after for everybody. So I think that has been a really good, I think COVID in a way has, has almost even cemented how useful this relationship side of the lending private credit business can be. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, one thing we saw in particular was that some sponsors who, who maybe had a historic aversion to private credit because they were worried that the tighter terms and, and the, you know, the consequential ability to trip those up during a crisis uh, would would cause real issues for their business. But what they saw instead was that those those terms are tighter. So the private credit has a seat at the table and, and you know, behaves as a partner, as Denise was saying. And uh, when when circumstances warranted it, when when COVID, you, you know, turned everything upside down, private credit turned up, you know, waivers were going through, uh, people were putting in, uh, you know, increased capital if the situation warranted it. So it really did test the asset class and, and you know, show show its stability. I think one of the other key factors as to why there has been a, a big in, increase in the amount of private capital has to do with what it can deliver in terms of speed of execution. And when you look around a lot of the cap markets, uh, professionals that sit in private equity firms, a lot of them come from an investment banking background. And so they are you know, used to having to do all the rating agency presentations, used to have to go on the road to do the syndication. And then they turn up at a private equity fund and they're being pitched to by private credit providers who are basically saying, come to me, let's get this done. There's no ratings needed and you don't have to worry about going to syndicate this debt because I'm going to be there for the, for the whole ticket. I think that is another attractive feature. And I guess tied to that is certainty, because, of course, when you go to the syndication markets, you are always, I guess, at the mercy of whatever flex terms you've agreed. So the pricing that has been underwritten may not be the pricing that you end up with, because if the market does not accept that, there will be a degree of flex that you have um, written into your into your terms. And again, once you sign a private credit deal, you do have that sort of certainty of terms. So I think I think they are some of the key things that have really made this a very attractive option for some borrowers. And, and again, to, to, to reinforce that point through COVID, we saw borrowers, uh, you know, sponsor back borrowers and otherwise who, who already had relationships with private debt funds 
able to capitalize really well on market opportunities through COVID because they could move very quickly with their investors and they could quickly get more debt in if they saw an opportunity to either do an add-on or to expand expand their business or equally if they were finding themselves in a sort of short-term liquidity crisis because once you've got that relationship with private debt they already know your business they they can move very quickly through their ic um they don't have to take market soundings or anything like that so so they can move very quickly basically sort of as quick as the lawyers can do the documentation they they can move into actually making that debt available to you so if i could jump in and just ask about um just to take you up on, on one of the points that you made uh denise which is on the the stage regarding private credit markets development um, so where where would you gauge um, that stage? Where, where are we at in terms of the private credit market development? And then um, my question is two parts then. Are we still then in the education phase then for both investors into private credit funds and, and their potential borrowers? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's a great question because I think the level of sophistication in this market has just gone from strength to strength. And I really don't think there are any pockets of the market now that, that actually private credit is not able to access. Um, but I do think that there is still some road to run and, and there are still sort of development areas. Maybe, Hannah, you want to pick that up in the first instance to talk about that from the more sort of investor um, perspective. Sure. I mean, I, I think it, it's fairly well recognised that we, we sort of tend to follow step in step the US market where, where you know, there's a bit more maturity in the private debt class. Um, that market is still growing. So I think we can see from the US model that while Denise says, you know, that the private debt has shown that it can access sort of every uh, support, every type of asset class, you know, we've seen more and more in real estate, you know, uh, infra, uh, we're seeing longer term funds raised on a bespoke basis to deal with some of, you know, the decarbonization projects that, that are needed, etc. So we, we've seen that private debt can perform for every asset class. We've seen that in the US, um, more of the market goes towards private debt and and continuing to expand. And I think, you know, in, in, until we find some kind of ceiling in the US market, it's too early to talk about ceilings um, on, on kind of the size of expansion of the private debt market in the UK and, and certainly the rest of Europe and, and obviously APAC as well. Thank you. I think then picking that up, I, I guess, from the other side, you could actually say, could the syndicated market learn a thing or two from the private credit market? Because there are actually certain credits and certain businesses that, frankly, the syndicated market cannot support um, because you basically need to have certain criteria in order to be, a, a, you know, an asset that can actually be sold into that market. And I'm thinking about actually looking at Hannah and some of the some of the, the transactions she's worked on. You know, if you've got a, a small sort of startup business and it's not necessarily even EBITDA positive yet, this is the type of thing when private credit can do stuff that, that other markets can't do for you, right? And you can effectively have the flexibility built into the document that you start out with something that looks quite different. And then once you reach a certain KPI, you can flip into something that then is a more sustainable sort of documentation to survive for that business as it, as it sort of moves through its journey. Um, but sort of coming back to your original question about, you know, what about the education, I guess, for, for the private credit market? You know, I think that there is still, and I think a lot of the concerns have been allayed, but I think there is still partly this sense of, you know, will there be enough capital to deploy? Will you be able to continue to support this business going forward? Are you just going to run away with the keys? You know, there's some of that old mentality from more of the special situations type funds. Uh, and so I think some people still need to catch up with the fact that the private credit market is just not that market. It's a very different 
um, mindset. And, and we talked a lot about that previously in terms of, you know, the support shown by the private credit community to a lot of the portfolios that they they lend to during the COVID pandemic. Um, and then I think the other thing is, as the private credit uh, investors have, have effectively moved up the food chain, as it were, from sort of the lower mid cap deals, which are very tight documentation, very closely controlled, you know, it's tied back to that relationship point. I want to know everything you're doing. I want to follow you every step of the way. But actually, as you start doing deals in the upper mid cap and you're dealing with financial sponsors that historically have always had much, um, much more freedom because they're basically more in the institutional market, you have to find a meeting of minds in terms of, you know, which bits are you going to let me get on with and which bits do I need to come and talk to you about? And I think that that is still a, a thing which evolves and, and frankly is a bit of a deal by deal discussion but I think that is that's probably where the market is still no one's quite landed on that yet and when you think you've landed on it then you hit the current economic climate and suddenly you're moving you're moving in a different direction again so that's kind of interesting for us as lawyers. So so just picking up on this education point because I think just going back to the report for a moment something that came through was this focus on globalization so when we're talking about the education phase obviously that renews or at least starts again whenever we move into something else and I think Asia was was one area that was particularly highlighted and I'm sure we'll bring Michael in on this a bit later but but just for now can you just talk us a little bit about your guys experience in expanding and and how the uh, the market as a whole is evolving and becoming more diverse yeah absolutely I, I mean this is this is a subject that that's very close to, to my heart in particular because it, it's part of why I love the a platform right We're very proud of our multi-jurisdictional direct lending specialist capabilities across uh, asset classes as well. Um, in Europe, uh, you know we're continuing to see increased interest in Italy in addition to the UK, France, Germany, Benelux, um, and also in Eastern Europe. We're still seeing a fair number of direct lending deals. It, it's small but increasing, and that that hasn't completely stopped even in, in, in the current climate. And that is very much matched by the, the respondents' answers to the survey questions in, in the report. Um, obviously, we're seeing exponential growth in APAC, which again matches the findings in, in the report, both in terms of you know, assets under management um, with LPs based at APAC taking an increased interest in, in local managers rather than looking to international managers and, and the relatively new fund formation regimes in Hong Kong and Singapore helping contribute to that, that growth. Um, and also in terms of where private debt capital is actually deployed as well. So both where it's raised and where it's deployed increasingly, there, there's a, a huge APAC market. Um, and again, as I say, it's not surprising that our experience matches the the aggregated data from survey respondents in in the report. Uh, the the report has some um, some interesting data on the evolving use of covenants within um, the various uh, deal frameworks that are arranged between borrower and lender. Um, could you explain to our listeners who are maybe not that au fait? Um, with with this um, this area, so what a covenant is, and and also your thoughts on how this feature is being utilised in the private credit market as opposed to public and broadly syndicated credit markets. Okay, well, why don't I kick off with that one to sort of talk about like what is a covenant and maybe talk about you know how that evolves um, or how that has evolved, the use of that's evolved in the public space because I think yes. Anna can then take that and talk about it how that they've used that in the private market but to start sort of with the basics a covenant i mean we're talking about a financial covenant here we're talking about something that gets tested quarterly so it's called a maintenance covenant 
And the real idea of this, it's a proxy for the health of the business. You know, is my business performing? And actually, the most common one you see in the LBO world is, is, is a leverage covenant, unsurprisingly. So that's basically a measuring the company's debt to the company's EBITDA. And there are other covenants that you see. You can see liquidity covenants. You could see a fixed charge cover covenant, some sort of interest cover covenant. So there's lots of different types of covenants, minimum EBITDA. But I think for the, for the most part, when people are looking at covenant trends, they're really focused on this on this leveraged covenant. Um, and it's a very it's, it's always a very topical debate. Like what is the headroom against the model? What is the headroom against the base case? If you set that too tight, you could have borrowers really becoming subject to scrutiny over a, a hair trigger. If you set that too wide, query why you bother having it at all, because it's really there to act as an early warning sign as we move into sort of distress. And I was having a discussion with someone yesterday about the fact that as the syndicated market moved to cover light, so let's just pick up on the cover light. Cover light is where you don't actually have a maintenance financial covenant. You're not testing every quarter. You effectively only have to test um, on your working capital facility, not your institutional line. And you only do that if that um, if that working capital line is drawn to, say, 40 percent on one day in the quarter, which happens to coincide with the testing date. So you can end up in a situation where you're never really having that ongoing health test. And it begs the question about what we're going to see as we sort of have this macroeconomic climate now when everyone's expecting restructuring to become bigger. But it's a lot slower than people are expecting. And one could argue it's because there isn't, you know, that sort of ongoing health check. Um, but in any event, I think that, you know, if you look at the high yield market, for example, they don't have any maintenance covenants at all. It's a very incurrence based. Just come and test a ratio if you want to do something. So, you know, we saw a lot in the, in the syndicated market, in the high yield market, that things moved into this incurrence phase rather than having, you know, an ongoing quarterly. Let's just have a sense check here about the health of this business, um, which I guess maybe, Hannah, you want to take over? Uh, yeah, and, and to Denise's point there that, you know, it, it very much is tied to the different nature of the investing across those different products. So uh, high yield bonds sort of conceptually were intended to be products where investors hold small amounts of the debt. So they're diversifying by way of holding a, a small ticket across a large number of companies and not really paying the same amount of attention to the companies that they hold debt in because their ticket is so small. So they're instead really looking at the markets they're investing in on an aggregated basis, assuming a kind of uh, in, intelligently set level of defaults and, and having kind of appetite to 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 uh, accept those defaults and therefore they're not really investing the time in getting to know the credits that they're holding debt in totally different to how the private debt market operates where um you have larger tickets you you achieve diversification through you know assigning those to different funds managed by the same portfolio manager um but that manager has a huge amount of debt across the board across funds invested in that company and and takes an active interest in the health of that company and that's where uh, increased reporting and, and also the covenant and other features of the private debt market help with that ongoing um relationship 
So, you know, when the market was was flush with liquidity um, and and particularly in the upper part of the the private debt market where um, investments are in larger EBITDA companies and perhaps on a clubbed basis with other uh, private debt providers. So they're getting some small step closer towards the kind of analysis that you'd make in in the high yield market. in those conditions, we 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 do see deals uh, in the private debt space w- without a covenant or that are done on a cov light basis um, for for those you know strong uh, credit I- in the sort of larger EBITDA space. Um, it's not all direct lenders that can do that. There's sort of a cohort of them that are able to do uncovenanted deals. Um, and in the report, you know, the, the the data shows that somewhere around 43%, I think, if I'm if I'm reading the bar chart correctly, of respondents um, uh, saw more financial covenant protection over the last year that, than previously, which is, you know, understandable given the events of the last year. So it, it's a market that that is perhaps more um, responsive in terms of using covenants as a tool to reflect uh, views of the the kind of macroeconomic conditions. I think and the other thing to notice on that is it's, it's one thing to have a covenant, but it's also the increased focus from these private capital providers about what that covenant looks like. So that comes back into talk, talking about headroom that you should be setting and also what sort of EBITDA adjustments are you going to allow because there is typically a degree of being able to inflate your EBITDA with what you're expecting to happen, what you've committed to do. Um, and I think, you know, I think the private credit community is very good at basically looking at that and figuring out what makes sense in terms of what are allowable adjustments. So turning to the mandatory ESG question then, because it is something that runs through the report. And yes, I encourage uh, listeners to to pick up on that. But I, I just want to put it to you in a little bit more of a broader sense first. What have we learned about the application of ESG principles in the private credit space over the years? And obviously, we've had a few uh, major events come out that may have influenced that application somewhat. Um, Hannah, could I put that to you first? Because last time we were chatting, you brought up this really interesting example of anti-embarrassment clauses. So I, I don't want to lead you too much, but if you could weave that in, that would be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, you know, ESG has evolved somewhat differently in the syndicated markets versus the private debt markets. Uh, reason being same basis as, you know, the other points we've discussed where the private debt market just has more of a kind of closer ongoing relationship with the companies that they invest in. So they can take a, a more tailored approach to ESG. Um, which, which really uh, rewards good behavior across the board and, and, and avoids any kind of greenwashing or sort of st- standardized KPIs that might not be appropriate. And, and you know, one, one example of that is anti-embarrassment clauses that we see more in the private debt market that you wouldn't really see in, in the syndicated market because uh, they, they require a, a level of knowledge about the credit in order to implement them. So what, what those clauses do is, is they basically say, here's your ESG ratchet. So, you know, you can have a reduction in your margin if you're meeting XYZ KPIs in the ESG space, but only if, um, you know, there's no kind of macro events relating to your company or which we consider inappropriate or ESG non-compliant. You know, an example would be a situation where um, a a business quite clearly has some very negative reporting around their ESG practices, but also simultaneously has managed to hit enough of their KPIs that they would otherwise be getting that margin reduction. In that situation, when you have knowledge of that and when you have that kind of close relationship to give them 
an ESG discount on their margin is, is not appropriate, right? And, and that's the kind of closer monitoring that private debt is capable of doing, um, which really allows investors confidence that when they invest in you know, ESG related um, private debt uh, assets, that, you know, that they are uh, much more closely attuned to uh, appropriate ESG criteria. If I was to jump in, I guess then, I mean, private credit would be the one space where, you know, you can truly align interest between the borrower and the lender, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you see a lot of close collaboration around that. Um, Not to kind of steal your plug if you were about to mention it, but um, obviously, you know, the ACC uh, has has done a lot recently on this ESG integrated disclosure project, right? Which which is really exciting in terms of... um, coming up with some standardized um, reporting, which is really going to help both borrowers and investors uh, focus on what matters in the ESG space. So I think that that's really exciting. If, if we do ever hear a complaint around ESG, it's mostly to do with just the volume of you know checklists that you get from different lenders, et cetera. So interests are aligned in terms of the outcome expected around ESG, but maybe not aligned in terms of the amount of churn of paper of responding to each lender's uh, separate checklist. So uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure you're excited about it because you built it. But uh, we we as you know players in the market are very excited to see how your um, ESG integrated disclosure project. No, about. indeed, and there's been there has been a very healthy take up already since we we launched this template um, last month. So you know we continue to watch that with great interest. Um, in terms of a final question, then to you both, is there anything that surprised you or stood out to you from you know the findings of financial economy report? Um, you know, any, any anyone who want to take that? I mean, the good news, I guess, um, and Hannah and I were talking about this uh, this earlier, and the to- it, the report is just a really great tool for I think consolidating and reinforcing the trends that we've been seeing in the market, and that was good news to us because it means you know we we seem to have got that right, um, so that was encouraging. I think one thing that stood out to both of us actually was. It seems obvious, but it probably is not something we've given a lot of thought to before, is is how many of the respondents say that they'd like to do more non-sponsored lending. And even throughout this discussion, we've talked a lot about the borrowers, but really usually by reference to, you know, sponsored portfolio companies. So I think it will be, you know, interesting to see how that that response translates into actually getting that penetration into the non-sponsor, um, the non-sponsor market. Um and I guess the other thing that, that we've been talking a lot about uh, is, you know, how does the private credit market and the syndicated market, you know, what does the future look like for the, for them sitting alongside each other? Because there has been even, you know, before uh, the, the macro events this year that have resulted in the syndicated market being largely closed, there has been, a, you know, a growing competition for similar assets between these two, these two markets. Um, and I think, People, people are looking at that and wondering what it's going to look like going forward. And I mean, if I had my crystal ball, my, my guess is, you know, there will always be, well, for as long as I will be around, um, a, a very important need for the syndicated market as well. If you think about record volumes of 21, it's just difficult for me to see how the private credit market is is going to be able to, in the medium term, absorb that, I, ignoring for a moment whether they've got the capital to do it. Just from a resourcing perspective, like how many ICs can you go through in any one week? So. As the M&A sort of volumes return uh, and sort of there is more certainty around how to price risk in the underwritten market, 
you know, my, my best guess is that we will come back to something that looks probably a bit more like 21 than 22, when 22 has been 100% pretty much private credit. I think there will be a space for both. But Hannah, what's your crystal ball? No, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's always going to be investors with an appetite for diversification through very small holdings in a very large amount of, of debt um, across different companies. And there will always be investors that are more interested in knowing that you know their investment uh, is, is more researched and more regularly monitored on, on a kind of partnership basis. So you're always gonna have that range of investors looking for protection in different ways. And while you've got that, there's always gonna be a place for both the syndicated market and, and also the private debt market. Another really interesting um, topic in the report is obviously around interest rates, which is hugely topical right now. Um, the private debt product is largely uh, interest rate linked, so floating rate, which which obviously is a very good thing as long as the borrower is able to continue to sustain servicing of, of that debt. Uh, and what I found really interesting in, in reading through the report um, is that a large number of respondents have actually already modeled in increased interest rates for some time now and been expecting uh, those to go up. So that provided me with a lot of confidence thinking about our, our sort of portfolio of deals that, that we have acted as lawyers on um, in terms of their ability to sustain increased uh, higher levels of interest. And you can read more about the private credit industry and the health of the industry, including emerging themes that we found in uh, the 2022 Financing the Economy report on the AMA website at AMA.org and on the Allen and Overy website. So all that is left of us then is to thank both Denise and Hannah um, for taking your time to speak to us on the long short and to all your colleagues um, for providing support and putting together this very timely report. So thank you all. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. (laughs) This winter marks the return of AMA and the ACC's Private Credit Investor Forum taking place on January 30th at the Fontainebleau Hotel in sunny Miami. This one-day event, which takes place in partnership with the iConnections Global Alts Conference, will kick off with small group sessions over brunch, followed by insightful panels and expanded networking opportunities. LPs, GPs, and industry specialists from all over the globe will come together to discuss the key trends shaping allocator sentiment and the evolution of the asset class. Join us to share in the discussion, get business done, and support the growth of the private credit industry. Sponsorship opportunities are available, so please check in on our website for a complete agenda. Come be a part of Florida's annual Alternative Investment Week. Welcome back to The Long Short, and with us now is Michael Small, who's a partner in credit and markets at KKR. Uh, of course, KKR, a contributor to this year's Financing the Economy report. Uh, Michael, you're very welcome. Great. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Looking forward to talking to you guys today. A key finding from this year's report is that global private credit managers deployed an estimated $127 billion during 2021. That was a 20% increase on the number we reported in our previous year's report. So I'm guessing, Michael, that the changing macro landscape this year has had an impact on private credit. What can you tell us then about deal flows and investor interest in private credit? So it's been a very unusual year. Um, the first half was broadly business as usual. 
And since then, we've seen this massive dislocation across the board in risk assets, which in our little world manifest itself most aggressively in the complete absence of issuance of syndicated loans and bonds. And that's important because private credit as an asset class is in competition with syndicated credit and bank-led credit. So we've seen a dramatic drop-off in the level of M&A, which pump primes the entire system. But because of the closure of the syndicated markets, we've actually seen private credit step up and take more market share. So net-net, I expect when this year's finished, volumes will be down year on year, but not nearly as much as you would expect if you just look at the headlines because of that capture of market share. And we've seen that in primary buyouts, but we've also seen it interestingly where existing issuers who need incremental financing have come to the private credit community and asked us to put in place what we call non-fungible tranches. These are bits of private credit that sit alongside syndicated loans and bonds in the capital structure of large companies that typically distribute their risk through syndicated markets. So when we decompose activity this year, it's very different to what we've experienced in the last vintage. I think the risk profile is quite attractive because we've captured exposure to larger businesses. And obviously pricing has gone our way. Most of what we do is floating rate. Base rates are significantly higher, and we've actually seen spreads widen a little bit as well. As it relates to the question around investor interest, I mean, it's very nuanced. Um, the denominator effect has been well publicized and well spoken about. That's led to a dramatic slowdown in the rate of fixed capital formation. To some extent, that slowdown has improved how attractive the market is just with simple supply and demand microeconomics. We're all very focused on 2023. I think everyone, whether you're a high net worth individual, whether you sit in a pension plan, an insurance company, or a sovereign wealth fund, is reassessing how they want to allocate capital across various asset classes as we transition into this brave new world. And I really don't think until we get into the body of 2023, we're going to have high conviction as to what the landscape really looks like. And Michael, just for some of our listeners who may not um, be aware of that term, um, which is referenced in the report, the denominator effect, what do we mean by that? So private credit's grown exponentially, largely because institutional investors haven't been able to generate the yield they need from traditional products like government bonds and investment grade loans and bonds. So they've been allocating to alternative assets and private credit is a big part of the alternative asset industry. Many institutions have guidelines as to the maximum percentage of their portfolio that can be in alternatives at any point in time. And let's say for the purposes of this, hypothetically, it's 10%. Many of them were nudging up towards that 10%, maybe eight or 9% of their plan was allocated to alternative investments. And then when we saw the dramatic sell-off earlier this year, the value of many of their liquid holdings, which described the largest part of the plan, fell in some instances by 10 or 20%. That's the denominator. So you had an alternative allocation going from 9% to maybe 11 or 12% because the broader value of the plan had declined quickly. What that meant in a lot of instances 
is they were unable to allocate more capital to alternatives until that situation had been reversed or until they'd managed to get approval from their board, from their trustees, from their CIO to change the cap. And that's not something that happens quickly. And it's one of those things I think is getting debated at the moment as people look to 2023 and how they want to construct their portfolios in this you know, high inflationary, high interest rate environment. Yeah, very helpful. Thank you. And the report poses the question of whether there is still an illiquidity premium in the private credit market. And, and that's something that I think runs through a lot of the, the data and the answers that, that we got, which is I found particularly interesting. But in terms of your perception of, of how investors are maybe becoming more comfortable with the illiquidity of private credit, is it still as big a concern as it was in, in previous previous years? And, and, and maybe, as, as Tom says, for our listeners, if you could start by maybe very briefly outlining what we mean by the illiquidity premium. So the illiquidity premium reflects the incremental return you capture providing credit as a private investor versus doing it through broadly syndicated markets. And generally, it's around 300 basis points or 3%, Um, sometimes a bit higher, sometimes a bit lower, depending on market forces. Very recently, there's been little to no primary issuance of syndicated credit. So it's been quite hard to assess faithfully what that illiquidity premium is. And so people have looked to the secondary markets and looked at the implied pricing of syndicated credit through where you can buy loans and bonds in secondary as a way of deriving what the liquidity premium would be today. And we've seen some compression because if I think back six or seven weeks ago, high yield bonds, for example, looked extremely cheap. It looked like they'd been oversold. Loans had sold off too. And so there were times that premium looked like it may be as narrow as 100 or 150 basis points. If we wind forward to today, and the landscape's very dynamic, things are almost changing on a weekly basis. The premium, if we look at secondary markets, is probably back to around two to 250 basis points. This week, we have a number of primary deals in the US market. If I look at where those primary deals suggest they might price, I feel we're back to that 300 basis points of premium for private credit over liquid credit. As how investors think about the liquidity generally and how they consider it in the context of how they make their own investment decisions, I think it's a mixed bag. I think it very much depends on the type of investor and what they're looking to solve. For those who don't need near-term liquidity in their portfolios, private credit is and will continue to be a very important component of what they do. For those that need liquidity or need to preserve access to liquidity, it's a harder thing to position because the underlying loans aren't liquid. And generally, the way we raise money is through structures that don't have inbuilt liquidity. I'm probably a little bit biased on this because private credit's what I've done for all my career. But what I'd observe if you consider the liquid markets is they're liquid to a point, but when you really need liquidity, it tends to dry up. There's no empirical evidence to support that unequivocally, but I think often we get sucked a little bit too far into this liquid versus a liquid debate. Very generally, whether it's a loan or a bond, 
whether it's private or liquid, it's a credit instrument, and we should just assess them on their merits at each point in time. Recognizing elements of loans and bonds are maybe a little bit more liquid than private credit, but I don't think it's as dramatic as certain commentators would like us all to believe. Um, Michael, the, the retailization of the market, that's an interesting trend that we marked out in this paper. And it's been mentioned about as well more widely. Um, what can you tell our listeners about this? So I think it's part of the natural evolution of any asset class. So historically, private credit has been almost exclusively financed through institutional money. Um, if we actually look at where capital sits globally, big portions of it aren't within institutions. They sit within commercial banks or, for example, in the personal pension plans of um, individuals. And it doesn't need to be a high net worth individual, just people generally. So you know, most people in this industry are commercially minded. Um, most of us are running businesses where there is a premium on growth. And so when we consider what we want our industry and our firms to look like on a five or 10 or 15 year basis, finding some way of accessing that non-institutional money has to be a good thing for the long-term health of the industry because it broadens the scope of capital that we can have access to to invest and also diversifies our own capital bases which is a good thing if you just think in the long term about liquidity and risk now it's a very different proposition to raising money from a very large multinational insurance company or sovereign wealth fund and so credibly, I think as an industry, we are treading cautiously and thoughtfully about how we do this. I don't think it's a sprint. I think it's a marathon. But I think in the long run, it's something that is healthy and inevitable. And, and something else that jumped out at me that I'm, I'm really keen to put to you is this idea around the globalization of private credit. Because when I was in Singapore earlier this year for our APAC forum, private credit came up far more than I expected it to as a growing trend for the region. And, you know, and again, and it's come up here in our reports. So what can you tell us about that? And, and, and specifically, how is your business done when it comes to exploring new markets and strategies? I mean, the globalization trend to me, again, is just natural. I mean, private credit is not specific to Europe or North America. It's just a different way of extending credit to either a corporate or a pool of assets. And we all forget, you know, people have been lending money for centuries, if not millennia. Um, and we tend to love to sort of label things and silo things and overcomplicate it. If we look at Asia today, there is a large amount of uninvested private equity dry powder and a lot of private capital looking to purchase good quality businesses. The banking market in Asia is not super deep, neither is the syndicated loan and bond market. So in order for those prospective buyers to satisfy their desires to go and buy these great companies, they're going to need financing. And it's likely in a lot of instances, the local bank market or bond market doesn't give them quite what they need, which is a great opportunity for private credit. And I think that's why you're picking up a lot of discussion around it. And that's why there's a lot of firms like mine spending a lot of time building a foundation there. Because there are elements of Asia, to me, feel quite similar to Europe, maybe 20 years ago, and perhaps North America 30 years ago, where you could see there was a very interesting opportunity to provide financing to companies in a way that wasn't necessarily and totally through the commercial banking market. Um, and I think you know, in a very long period of time, I'm talking multiple decades, 
the distinctions we observe today in private credit between North America, Europe, and latterly Asia will become less and less obvious, and it will become a bit more homogenous in terms of product. The way one deploys, obviously, will always reflect local nuances, the legal code, cultural customs. But generally, you know, what we need to accept is it's lending money. It's not rocket science. Michael, what do we know about the changing demographic of borrowers that are accessing private credit now? So I think the most obvious and powerful part of that, which is highly correlated to the growth of the private credit industry, is the size of borrowers. As each year goes by, I think the average EBITDA of borrowers within private lenders' portfolios is going up. And that can only be a good thing. Generally, large mature companies tend to be more stable than small growing companies. And stability is a very important part of being a lender through the cycle. And I think as an industry, as we've captured more capital, it's allowed us to do that and be a credible financing source for companies with one, 200, or even more million euros of EBITDA. So these are large businesses, either national champions or multinational platforms. I don't think that trend can continue ad infinitum because at some point you can't have private credit doing the exact same thing as syndicated credit. But I still think there's an incredibly long runway until we even get close to that challenge. Now, in the report, um, if I may, uh, you, you were quoted as saying that if M&A, emergent acquisition activity, picks up, which is our base case, we could see a really interesting vintage for private lenders as there will be less heat in the syndicated debt markets. New deals will then have lower leverage, higher coverage ratios and improved pricing and documentation. And we believe this will be the case for both senior and particularly junior private debt. Can you elaborate on this? With pleasure. Um, as we transition into the next cycle, People are going to place a premium, I think, on buying high-quality, resilient companies. And I think correctly, the value at which they can purchase those companies is going to stay high. Many buyers will want financing. Very recently, for big companies, the most obvious and cheapest way to finance was to get a rating and issue a syndicated loan or bond. And so as a private credit community, we're always competing with that in terms of what's the next best option of the borrower. Next year, senior syndicated leverage is going to be lower than it's been in the past for two reasons. One is objective, and that's with interest rates being higher to solve for the same coverage ratio, you would put less debt on the business. Secondly, there is going to be less excess liquidity in the system. So at the margin, there is going to be less money flowing into loan and bond funds, which is going to mean investment banks are less inclined to do something aggressive in terms of the capital structures they underwrite. That will make private credit more competitive than it has been historically for some of these larger companies I was referring to earlier. So I think the opportunity set will be wider. Leverage levels will be lower. Pricing is attractive, both relative and absolute, when we factor in base rates and spreads. And I think that's going to be true for both senior private credit, but also junior private credit. And the one imponderable in it all is when will the M&A machine start up again? I don't have a crystal ball, but I would venture a guess it's going to be some point in 2023. So I, I do want to come back to the <laughs> give you an opportunity to, to get your crystal ball out. But before we do, 
we've obviously been guiding you until now on what really stood out to us in the report. But is there anything that stood out to you or was particularly interesting? Yes. I mean, the thing that I found most illuminating was the skew to a number of your respondents towards the UK and also smaller companies. Um, I think a lot of the information, understandably, is being captured looking in the rearview mirror because people are responding in the context of what they've done rather than what they expect to do. But I think on a go forward basis, just given macro fundamentals and also, you know, general fear aversion, given we are going into a recession, I think we'll see managers skew a little bit away from the UK and try and skew to larger companies, a sort of flight to quality, if it were, in terms of size of company, sector and their defensibility, given the headwinds they're facing. So it's going to be very interesting for me and your other respondents and readers to look at the report in 12 or 24 months time and let's see how things have evolved and whether we've done a good job as an industry of adapting. It's sort of our Darwinian moment, I think. There's a lot of upside to capture, but also for those that perhaps are a little bit slow to adapt or perhaps can't, um, I think there's going to be some tough times ahead. So finally then, returning to that that billion dollar question that I think we've alluded to in a couple of different ways so far, Private credit is, seems to be performing well this year. As you say, there's always a little bit of lag on that. But I do have to put it to you directly. Do you predict this to continue? Is there anything you want to add further to that idea around different aspects of direct lending? And, and maybe is there any uh, regional nuances to this question? Look, I don't think we're facing any existential risks in terms of performance. Um, I think generally the industry is populated with smart people who are experienced that understand credit fundamentals. The environment we're in, none of us saw coming, or if we did, we didn't expect it to happen quite so precipitously and aggressively. And at a macro level, we're seeing things I've certainly never seen in the last 25 years. And we're going to see an awful lot of stress on the gross margins of companies because they've got the twin towers of increasing costs and in some extent declining demand at the same time. And that's going to be very obvious in certain sectors. And I think it's going to be more obvious in small companies than large companies because they're just less well equipped, given where they sit in their value chain, to pass increased costs through to their customers. So we will, as an industry, see some stress. We are going to see some defaults. Many might just be based on interest rates where you amend the debt and life goes on. But some will be a function of operating distress. And that's where I think we're going to see over time the worst performance. I don't think it's going to be country specific. I think it's going to be sector and size of company specific. That's interesting. And I'm glad you you brought up this this issue, this this dynamic of, of of rising interest rates in some senses being good for the sector, but obviously bringing with it the risk of defaults. And it's interesting you saying it's more sector than than regional. And, and I guess that may well be the, the focus of next year's report. Uh, so, and unfortunately, that is all we have time for. So, so all that's left is for me to thank you so much for coming on the long short today and giving some really valuable colour to the data. And, and just as a reminder to listeners, the report is available on the AIMA.org website or you can find it in the show notes. So, Michael, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. 
The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.